0: Heavenly Father, thank you that your mercies are new every morning, that your word is living and active, that you are a God who intervenes in our world. Give us understanding, give us insight, give us wonder at who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. It's a bit complicated, but we'll see what we can do. But... um, as I begin, I wanted to just get us into the frame of mind, picking up something of where we've come from so far. And the starting point in all that we're thinking about is the simple fact of a hill outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago where Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It is on the basis of that one unique revolutionary event that Paul can write everything he writes in this letter. He spent years meditating on it, years contemplating what it would mean for a Gentile audience to come to know that wonder for themselves. So I've I've chosen different songs and different pieces. This is one from about three or four hundred years ago, just to sort of um, ring the changes a little bit. Um, And it's by an Italian composer called Antonio Lotti. And basically, he just takes the line uh, from the Creed in Latin that speaks of the cross. Now, one of the extraordinary things, um, and, and you find that a lot of sort of popular music doesn't really do enough of this, in my opinion, but uh, dissonance in music can be incredibly powerful. And this is, uh, it feels really ahead of its time, this little piece. It's very short. And basically, he uses. Dissonance, so clashing notes to create a a sense of agony that gets resolved. And to my mind, it's almost as if it's like the nails being hammered in for us. What does it mean that he has done that for us? How does that change us? How should it change us? Uh, One of my heroes is uh, a man called Oliver Sacks, who's a British neurologist who's worked most of his life in America. He was the one that Robin Williams played in the film Awakenings, if you saw that. Um, and uh, one of his other famous books is uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. This is an absolutely brilliant book, and his speciality is basically helping people with disturbing and unique neurological problems that nobody else can work out. So he's a bit like uh, Dr House, if you know about House, uh, but without the rudeness. He's actually a very gentle man, fortunately, so that's a much better combination. Um, But in his book An Anthropologist on Mars, he writes about a man called Virgil, Uh, that he um, was called in to help with. He was often the sort of last resort doctor. Nobody else knew how to to, to help these people. And Virgil had been born blind, uh, sorry, had been blind from childhood. Um, uh, But when he was 50 years old, he underwent some radical surgery and suddenly found himself waking up with the gift of sight that he hadn't had for over four decades. Uh, And... Uh, as both he and Sachs discovered, actually, the physical capacity for sight is not the same as being able to see. And Virgil's first experiences of sight were profoundly confusing and actually deeply disturbing, because it, you know his his eyes were receiving all these sort of strange signals that he'd never had to process before, and actually the world was suddenly terrifying. Uh, You know, he could make out colours and movements, but uh, arranging these into some sort of coherent picture was was much more difficult. Now, over time, he got used to it, and, you know, the brain is a remarkable thing, it's adaptable, and he could identify objects. But what was interesting, and the reason why he went to see Dr. Sachs, was that his habits and his behaviour were still those of a blind man. He could see... But, for example, he would put his hands out to feel his way around a room, even though his eyes could see exactly what was there. But it was just his habit, even in daylight. And then Sachs used a very striking description of what Virgil now needed. And uh, this is Oliver Sachs's own words. He said, One must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It is the interim, the limbo, that is so difficult and terrible. In other words, he had to stop thinking like a blind person, which was hard to do after 45-odd years. And he had to be born again as a seeing person, now that he'd had the miracle of sight. And I think the metaphor works very well for spiritual sight after spiritual blindness. It takes a lot of getting used to. And for a lot of us as believers, we find ourselves in the interim, in the limbo between the two. We don't quite fully grasp how revolutionary our conversion is, how radical the shift, the transformation has been. And, you know, we have begun to see Jesus as he truly is. Our spiritual sight has come, but we're a bit like... um, The blind man, born blind uh, in in the Gospels, and Jesus heals him partially. He begins to see people, but they look like trees walking around. And we need to grasp fully what we now have. We have the gift of sight. There's no two-stage thing here. We have it. The question is, our mindset is still stuck in the blind world and we need to open our eyes and start seeing as people who can see and see the liberation that that brings. And it means a profound, a total change of identity. And and as we've been thinking in various seminars and and at various points, it, it involves our mindset. It starts in the mind. Just as Virgil had to stop thinking like a blind man and start thinking like a seeing man, so do we as believers. And this is why the chapter is, well, Galatians is so binary. You know, two sides. There's, there's no fence. There's A or B, black or white. And this is why chapter four is, perhaps, as binary as it gets in the Bible. So you look back, um, the inside back page. You see the two tracks of Galatians. Um, we'll explore more about how this diagram works. But basically, uh, what is it? Page fourteen or something? I can't remember. What does it say? anyway, it it's on the inside back. Um, and basically um, we'll begin to see why it is as binary as it is. There really are only two tracks. And the question is is, has our mindset changed track? Jesus has done the radical thing. Has our mind? We're his, but has our mind and our understanding caught up with our identity? And that's what we're going to be trying to think about today. Now, as I've said before, a binary truth doesn't make everything in the world binary. There are a lot of things that are confusing. There are a lot of things that are both and. And and we don't want to get into the mindset of, of thinking everything in life is black and white. It isn't. But this is. Paul is describing the difference that our identity makes. And so basically it boils down to whether we're with Christ or without Christ. In verse 26 um, of chapter 3, so in Christ, Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. This is who we are, in Christ, because of grace. Not because we made ourselves with Christ, we could never do that. We have been invited, we have been given the gift of Christ. Now, it is very clear how painful Paul finds this to write, especially if we take the middle section of chapter 4 verse uh, first. Um, and so, um, okay, here's the diagram. Sorry, I haven't quite caught up with myself. We'll come back to that. Um, but uh, if we take the middle bit from verse 12 first, um, Paul is being very clear. You are imitators, not deserters. What are you doing, Galatians? You know, remember the past, says Paul, remember what it was like when I visited you? Verse 12, you know, I became like you. You didn't no know wrong. We had a great time together. They were great days. You know, they fated and cared for Paul. They enjoyed his company, despite his illness. In verse 14, whatever that was, we don't really know uh, what the illness was, but, you know, it could, be, it could be something to do with his eyesight. That's why he says, you know, you would have given me your eyes if you could. It doesn't really matter what it is. It could have been just um, uh, you know, something that was perhaps unpleasant or antisocial. You know, those illnesses are very difficult. And that said a lot for the Galatians. They wanted him around. They enjoyed his company. They had all kinds of reasons, worldly-wise, to reject Paul, but they didn't. They welcomed him as if he was an angel, a messenger from God. And of course, in Lystra, in Acts 14, as we saw the other day, people thought Paul and Barnabas were Greek gods, Hermes and Zeus. But right from the start, the preaching was vivid, resoundingly clear about the grace of God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified before you. We saw that yesterday. But something's gone wrong. It's all shifted. They've gone from devotion to downright hostility. So chapter 4, verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Very painful. Personally. But much more concerning spiritually. Uh, The false teachers have been zealous to win them over, but, but zeal isn't the problem. The issue is what people were zealous for. And Paul is clear. The only thing to really be zealous for is being in Christ. So what does that mean? How has that changed our identity? Christ died for our sins. And we are now in Christ. What does that mean? Well, going back to the beginning of our section, chapter 3, verse 25. You are sons, not slaves. Now it's interesting that he uses the baptism imagery here in verse 27. And that's quite binary in itself, if you think about it. Um, and you know, what a joy it was to see those three on, on Sunday being baptized. You get into the pool, you get dunked, you go right under, and you come out again. It's a powerful symbol, a very simple one, but a powerful and resonant symbol of dying and rising. Uh, the, the, the rising bit is quite important so you don't want to stay under for too long. Um, But the, the key thing is that it's a picture of the old man dying and the new man rising because of Christ. If I'm dead, I can't make myself alive. I mean, it's one thing for a doctor to try and make someone alive, but it's certainly not possible for yourself to make yourself alive. And then Paul develops the image from baptism, doesn't he? Um, in verse uh, 27, that by being baptised, it's like you're clothed with Christ, which is a very odd thing, you know, I mean, clothed with a person. Um, But don't push the imagery too far. It's simply like saying you put on a uniform. Now, I don't know whether you um, had to wear a uniform at school um, or whether uh, you still do if you're at school, but um, I had a very silly uniform at school, um, we had to look like funeral directors from the age of 13. Um, but that, uh, that's another story. And, um, <clears throat> but I can see generally, if in normal schools you have a very good reason for wearing a uniform, because basically it avoids a lot of the sort of peer pressures and you know, inequalities that happen at home, and some people have, you know, can afford all the brand labels and everything else, and other people feel left out. Actually, a school uniform is a great leveler. You know, everyone complains about them, but I think they're a really good idea. They'll be simply those people who simply can't afford the designer labels and the trendy accessories. So, for a time being, for the the hours at school, everybody's on the same level playing field. Well, the Christian has a far greater uniform. It's not a constraining, constricting, mean-spirited uniform. It's Christ himself. And that immediately, you see, it immediately abolishes all hierarchies and other unhelpful distinctions. It's a wonderful uniform, a precious uniform. We are all in Christ, clothed with him. So you get this resounding battle cry, this trumpet call of verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed... So you're part of that seed. You see, the argument in chapter 3 is about there is one seed, and that is Jesus. And if we're clothed with Jesus, we're part of that one seed. And therefore, heirs according to promise. The promises that Abraham had and that Jesus fulfilled. And if we're clothed with Christ, they're ours too. Christ is a non-discriminating uniform. He's an equal opportunities redeemer. Anyone can put him on. It just takes faith, which is a great leveller. And it's a wonderful foundation for friendship and love and community. C.S. Lewis famously said, Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, What? You two? I thought I was the only one. Church begins there too. All souls of the church that looks as though it's full of sorted people. I can assure you there are no sorted people at All Souls. Not one. We're in it together. What? You two? Yep. Friendship begins there, grace begins there, Christ begins there. I mean, human beings, it's in our nature, isn't it, to to make distinctions quite naturally. In fact, we seem happiest and most secure when deciding who's in and who's out. We rather like that. It appeals to us. We flatter ourselves. It's ingrained to think of the world as them and us, with all the kinds of barriers and walls and distinctions and shibboleths and everything else to protect the distinction between them and us. Uh, And you see this particularly sometimes, you know, uh, in wartime or in times of conflict or... You know, um, when people get sort of patriotic. Now, I'm not against being patriotic, but we just got to be careful. It's interesting. George Bernard Shaw put it brilliantly. He said, patriotism is your conviction that this country is superior to all other countries for the simple fact that you were born in it. (laughs) Which is pretty idiotic when you think about it. And that goes for everything, whether it's gender, education, nationality, social status, race, intelligence, job. You name it. But the gospel of grace, the uniform of Christ, subverts it all. Because when you're wearing Christ, you can't see whether someone's wearing a doctor's coat or a refuse collector's overall, or um, an airline pilot's cap, or anything like that, you can't tell, because they're clothed in Christ. That's the uniform. And this applies far further than the Jew-Gentile debate that was going on in Galatia, although that is the primary presenting issue, isn't it, in Galatia? That's the issue that he's dealing with. Christ has broken down the dividing walls we are now clothed with Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, we mustn't push the uniform idea too far. It doesn't mean that differences are irrelevant. Just as a school uniform doesn't make people into clones. Christ makes us equal, not identical. And we must glory in our differences. Otherwise, becoming a Christian would be a terrifying prospect. It would be, you know, we would lose my identity rather than gain a new one. I would lose myself completely, I would be sort of subsumed into the sort of amorphous blob, or the sort of cosmos, I would lose myself. Now of course in some religious systems that's precisely what people have as their goal. But that's not what Christ offers. I don't stop being a man, I don't stop being British, I don't stop being Gentile when I come to Christ, it's just that that's not of ultimate importance. Yes, we have differences. We have different gifts. We look different. We're from different countries. We have different skin color. It's wonderful. It's one of the things I love about all souls. Let's glory in our differences. Let's make more of our differences if Christ is our uniform. If we make more of our differences without Christ as our uniform, we will splinter and crumble and fragment. Here's a quote that I rather like. No race possesses the monopoly of beauty, intelligence, force, and there is no room for all of us at the rendezvous of victory. Now, I'd love to be able to tell you that that was written by a Christian, but it wasn't. It was written by a communist member of the ANC in the dark days of South African apartheid. Very often in, under apartheid, it was the communists, actually, who had the strongest convictions about racial equality from a political position. And very often it was the Christians who failed completely to stand up against it. No race possesses the monopoly of beauty, intelligence, force. No race. And the victory this communist was talking about was a a, a victory brought about by revolution and majority rule. Now, don't imagine that this is a past problem. We we don't do it explicitly, of course. We're much too polite in London. But here's a black woman's experience of Christians in London when she first started going to church in London. I have experienced black and white Christians meeting for worship events and conferences to talk about racial harmony. But when those same people meet you on the street, they pretend they've never seen you before. In one church, I was speaking on suffering in the church. I mentioned my own experience of rejection and insults and discrimination. And a woman in the congregation stormed, you people look for these things. The minister had to assure the congregation that it happens and gave examples that he knew about. Incidents like this have not necessarily changed for the better. When somebody denies the experience we have as black people dealing with racism, that's simply unfair and untrue. The problem is that people see the colour of the skin rather than the uniform of Christ. I I suppose it's tricky, isn't it? Because this uniform that we have, we've clothed ourselves with Christ, is invisible. And the way it's portrayed is through our actions and our relationships and how we treat one another. So we have to work at it. But if we've clothed ourselves with Christ, we have no excuse If Christ accepts me by grace, and boy, it was only going to be by grace with me, then who am I not to accept everyone else? Everyone else he welcomes. Our identity has changed, so has theirs. End of story, start of unity. The same goes for gender, nationality, social status, you name it. I mean, the list gets boring, but it's all of them. Each is in Christ, which means we are together part of the seed descended from Abraham. So according to these verses, verse 29, we are therefore all together heirs according to promise. And then Paul returns to social status as a metaphor to develop his thinking in the beginning of chapter 4. You see, in a Roman household, there would have been several people... Um, even in relatively modest um, homes, there would have been several people living under the roof, uh, including children and slaves. And, and many, many families would have um, at least one or two slaves. It's reckoned that in Rome, at the height of the imperial um, uh, uh, times, that, that um, something like a third to half the population of Rome were technically slaves. There are a whole load of myths about ancient slavery that um, we must debunk. I would have time for that. I would like to do that if I had time, but I don't. But, but basically, um, under ancient custom and law, children had no legal rights at all um, until they came of age. That's what lies behind what Paul says in verse 1. What I'm saying is that lo- as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. Though, technically, he owns the whole estate because he didn't get it all. The Verse 2, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Now, in fact, as we saw yesterday, young children may have had to submit to some slaves themselves. I mean, if there was a pedagogos in the house, a, a, a slave, enslaved tutor... The child would have had to submit to a slave for his education, at least to be taken to school. And basically, um, what Paul is saying in verse 3 is those who had the law were under its slavery until they come of age. Now, I agree, it's a bit of a finickety little argument, this one, but this is what he's saying that there is a period um, before which they receive the full blessing of the inheritance. And and I've tried to summarise this in the table here, that basically before Christ came, they are slaves, um, they're like slaves, they're subject to powers even if they're an heir, and basically it's only through the coming of age, which is equivalent to Christ coming under the law, verse 4, that in verse 5, it is possible to be adopted and receive the full um, uh, possibility of being an heir. So, verse 5 or verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So, basically, Paul is saying before Christ, we are like those who are still underage children. The inheritance is coming, everyone knows it's theirs, but they don't have it yet because they're too young. And then Christ comes, it's like their 18th birthday, or whenever it is. Your 18th birthday, you become an adult, and you have the inheritance. Does that make some sort of sense? Um, or to clarify the illustration from yesterday, I realized I left out the key punchline with that um, weird stacking um, Heathrow Airport illustration. The point is that the stacking time above London airspace is like the law, because you're under the authority of the air traffic controller. And you can't land until he lets you land, and then you reach the promised landing. Haha, <laughs> I like that. I wanted to repeat it. People have complained about that joke, but I liked it, so I'm saying it again. The promised landing. It's very good, Jonathan. Um, and the key to this, the, the key to us becoming fully grown, to becoming adults, to claiming our inheritance, is because Christ, verse 4, came under the law in our place. He became a slave to the law, if you like. And that enables those who are slaves to be substituted with him and therefore inherit his inheritance, which is to be sons. Which means if you have the full rights of a son, you are able to inherit. Now, this new NIV uh, translation um, is an inclusive language translation. I am actually strongly in favor of inclusive language on the whole. I think it's important. Language changes. Vocabulary is never static. And so what 50 years ago meant all people, so the word man and mankind 50 years ago meant humanity and everybody accepted that. It has shifted today so that now very often, very often when people hear the word man, they think not woman which is why it is right to start using words like people, person. Because the whole point is not that it's gender-specific. But what is interesting here, and the NIV is absolutely right, to stick with the word sons in verse 6. Because in the ancient Roman code, only sons and not daughters could inherit. Right? Who cares whether we like it or not, that was the way it was. Only sons could inherit. But do you see what is amazing? After verse 28 of chapter 3, no distinctions between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, you are all sons. So you can all inherit, whether you're a man or woman, slave or free, Greek or Gentile. You can all inherit. All are sons and can now call God Father, just as we saw from um, Jeremiah, all can know him in intimacy. Incidentally, I hate to be a bit of a party pooper here because I know it's a much-loved thought, that, You know, the idea that Abba is an affectionate name for father, meaning something like daddy. I'm, it's, it's almost certainly a personal word. It's what you would have called your father in the ancient world. But in fact, in Aramaic, it was the only word. Um And um, so Jesus would have used that word in all kinds of contexts. He would have talked about it in terms of, you know, it would have said on your birth certificate if they'd had them, who's your Abba? So, you know, it's not like a British birth certificate saying, who's your daddy? It's saying, who's your father? But it's also what you would call your father. And it's affectionate as well as formal. In Aramaic, there was only one word. So, you know, we can't sort of build too much of a thing about God being our daddy, even though he is. Do you see what I'm saying? But the point is we have this awesome privilege as co-heirs with Christ, clothed in him to be sons of God so that whoever we are, wherever we're from, whatever we've done, the God of the cosmos is our father. So Paul reminds the Galatians in the starkest terms of their terrible error. Verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you do know God, or rather you're known by God because it's all from grace, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you as if I've wasted my time. I mean, he's talking about the whole sort of system of, of Jewish festivals. And, you know, it's not wrong to have these festivals, but if you're insisting on celebrating them in order to stay in, Paul's saying, I've wasted my time. Galatians, why are you going back to the holding pattern of the law when the plane has already landed? You're clothed with Christ in grace. You're slaves who've become sons. You can call God Father. You don't need all of that. Or like Oliver Sacks' patient Virgil, you're living as if you're still blind when actually you can see. You're sons, not slaves. Your identity has been revolutionized. Don't go back. You are sons, but you live as slaves. You're free. The Galatian acid test is how you treat those different from you, but who wear the same uniform. When was the last time you shared your life with them, your homes, your hopes, your fears? All souls is diverse, but we have our cliques. We have our blocks. Certain groups of people like to sit in the gallery at the nine thirty. Other groups sit somewhere else, and you know, students all stick together, and families all stick together, and you name it, it whatever it is. Most of the time, there's it nothing deliberate about it, is it necessarily? It just feels safer. But we're clothed with Christ. That should count for something, shouldn't it? Or do we blithely, unthinkingly follow? The way of life of the blind, despite being able to see. The key word for the rest of Galatians is the word free. It's been tagged twice, but um, now until the end of tomorrow's section, we find out what it really means. What is this freedom for which Christ has set us free? That's the theme of the week. It's taken a while to get here. But for now, we've got to understand that this freedom is not what we think. Freedom is, we think, freedom is doing what I want, when I want. Jesus offers freedom from doing what I want, when I want. And so his final point is, you're freed, not chained. Hopefully, there we go. The binary nature of chapter 4 continues much more starkly in the last 10 verses, and I'll come through this very quickly. But um, basically what Paul does is he turns the scriptures that they love so much back on the Judaizers. It turns them back, again going back to Abraham. Paul's argument is now not that Abraham has precedent over Moses. That was chapter 3. Now he talks about Abraham's own family. Now, it seems that, you know, in our culture, we're pretty obsessed with family trees. We, you know, you have who do you think you are on TV the whole time. And it only wor- really works if, or, or as good TV, isn't it, when someone famous discovers something shocking or surprising, and it's especially good TV if they start crying. Um, you notice that? And then the camera zooms in, and, you know, the tears get magnified, and you think, wow, they're really in touch with their emotions. Um, you know, that's the money shot, Well, Paul is going to need to reduce the Galatians to tears by showing that the Judaizers don't quite have the genealogical credentials that they might have hoped for. Go back to Abraham's biography and his rather dysfunctional family. He's saying, Abraham slept with two women, one his wife, one his slave, Sarah and Hagar. And then Paul gets weirdly non-biological. Have a look at verse 23. This is weird. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. Okay, we can all get that. We all know basic GCSE biology. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. Now, that's pretty odd. Now, of course, Abraham did have sex with both Hagar and Sarah. The difference, though, was that with Sarah, conception was impossible. She was beyond childbearing age. It was impossible, humanly speaking. She was just too old. And in fact, it was Sarah who encouraged Abraham to sleep with Hagar in the first place. She says, I don't know how we're going to have a family. You better sleep with Hagar. That'll sort it out. It was her idea. They simply couldn't work out out how on earth God's global plan for a global influencing family was going to work. Which is the classic... Schoolboy, schoolgirl error, isn't it? In the Bible, people make this error again and again. If God has promised something, the schoolboy error is to think, "I don't know how this is going to work it out. Uh, work out. I better take things into my own hands." Obviously, God's going to need a little bit of help. Instead, we act when we should be trusting. And God has promised a family. Isaac comes as a result of a promise. Now, this is, again, where it gets even odder. Uh, um, Paul takes the metaphor of the two sons, one by promise, one by simple biology, and makes the whole thing a sort of mixed metaphor. And so he starts talking about these two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And in one column, and you can see this in the table I've put there, um, Basically, you have—here um, is it coming? Yep. You have um, Hagar's offspring representing those who are enslaved to thinking that the law is what saves you. So this misunderstanding of Mount Sinai, even though Mount Sinai was God's idea, basically it is those who take that as the way to be saved. They are like people who don't trust God to keep His promises, just as. Abraham and Sarah failed to trust God by getting Hagar pregnant. Do you see? That is why it is by works of the law. They're doing it their own way. But Sarah's offspring, they're born free. They're members of the Jerusalem built um, on the heavenly mountain um, because, basically, that is what God said would happen. And even though, humanly speaking, it seems absurd and impossible, it happens. They trust him. And the latter, the second group, are much more blessed because it is a result of blessing. That's why there's that long quote from Isaiah uh, 54. The miracle of the ancient Sarah being able to have children. She's able to rejoice and be glad because God has done it. And so the idea is, if you rely on works of the law, you are Ishmael's. If you rely on promise, you are Isaac's. And this leads to two outcomes. It's brutal but clear. It is as binary as it gets. Verse 30. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. If you're a slave, you don't inherit. Only sons inherit. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman, the woman who gave birth as a result of a promise. You see, it's grace, grace, grace. It always has been from the year dot. From Abraham onwards, you are saved by grace, by trusting God to keep his promises. This is a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. But here's Paul's radical point. Moses was a child of Abraham, but not because he was descended from him, but because he trusted in God. That's what made him a child of Abraham. And the law on Sinai was given to, by God to save people who trusted him. So the most important verse in the Ten Commandments is the first one and the second one, where God says, I brought you out of Egypt. You're saved people by grace. Why did God set his love on Israel? Was it because they're grand and impressive and great? He says, no, you're the smallest of all the nations. I love you, though. I love you because I love you. You didn't deserve it. In fact, you're pretty unlovable. But I love you because of my grace. And the law is the holding pattern until the whole plan is fulfilled in Christ. Do you trust me on that, God says? Do you trust me? Obedience is the response of people to grace. And Paul is a child of Abraham, not because he was Jewish, although as we read in Philippians and other places, he could claim the ultimate perfect Jewish pedigree, couldn't he? Pharisee, Benjaminite, taught by the best scholars, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. If anyone could claim the ultimate racialist heritage, it was Paul. He had all the boxes ticked. But Paul is a child of Abraham, not because of his birth, but because of his new birth. Not because he was born to Jewish parents in Tarsus, but because he was born to Christ on the Damascus road. That's what makes him a son of Abraham. The key, then, to being truly Jewish is not race, but grace. To being truly Jewish is not works, but faith. That's why Jesus is both the fulfillment and the wonder of God's work. He makes it clear why all can share the inheritance. All can be God's sons, whether male or female, Jewish or Gentile, slave or free. In Christ, we are clothed with him. We are all free. Start living as a free person. You now can see. Stop living as a blind person. I'm nearly there, but there's a great moment in an early Simpsons cartoon uh, when Homer and Bart drift out to sea in a dinghy. And Homer wastes their water, water, the the precious water they have in the boat, he wastes the water by deciding to wash his socks. Um, And then he starts eating all their rations. Um, And then they realise a a rescue plane flying uh, overhead, And Homer lights a flare, but unfortunately the flare hits the plane, and it crashes. (laughs) And at one point, they find themselves surrounded by thick fog. There's the fog. They can't see anything. And and Homer gets into an hysterical uh, panic. It's a bit like um, Dad's army. You know, we're doomed! We're doomed! And then the fog clears, and then this huge boat drifts into view. And someone on the boat calls, Are you okay? And Homer is a typical man, and so he won't admit his need. So he shouts back, yep, everything's fine. (laughs) The fog closes in again, the boat disappears, and then Homer starts panicking again. Isn't that like the Galatians? And us. Crazy, insane, but accurate. You fine? Yeah, fine. Fine. (laughs) You're right? Yeah, yeah, cool. Too proud to ask for help. You see, pride, in fact, is the only stumbling block in the end. The only one. You see, there is one binary, there is one group of people that cannot be clothed with Christ. Slaves and free people can. Men and women can, Jews and Gentiles can, rich and poor can, brainy, thick can, sporty, non sporty can, it doesn't matter who you are, you all can except for one group the proud. The proud and the humble are split down the middle. You can't be proud and a Christian, you can't be discriminatory and a Christian. you can be confident. That's a very different thing. Grace makes us supremely confident. I can be absolutely assured because it doesn't depend on me. I can be confident, but I can't be proud. We mentioned him earlier, so let's uh, come back to George Bernard Shaw. There's a story of him uh, going to a Christian meeting in London. and. A preacher was explaining the cross in simple and clear terms. Jesus died in our place to wipe away the guilt, to give us hope for the future, to make us free. He died that we should be forgiven. At this point, it was a step too far, for sure. He stormed out of the building, booming at the top of his voice I'll pay my own debts. And he went on to write about what he called cross which he decided was an aberration of true Christianity. He thought Christianity was basically all about loving your neighbour as yourself and the golden rule. He despised and detested cross Christianity, Christianity that, that puts the cross at the centre. A religion that has a Messiah who needs to die on an instrument of torture punished in our place, he said, was something utterly to be despised. The problem is that Christianity, if we put it like that, is precisely what the New Testament preaches. It's precisely what Paul preached. It's precisely what was agreed to by the apostles in Jerusalem when Paul wanted to check out that he wasn't running in vain. It's precisely what led Titus to come to Christ. It's precisely what we preach. Because it's only by the cross that we can ever hope to be adopted. To become sons, sons of Abraham, sons of Christ, the sons of God, and co-heirs with Christ. Amen.